Welcome everyone to the Rise Podcast. Quasi Millington here, and I want to thank my guest for today, Mark Bouchard. Am I saying your last name correctly? Yes. Okay, perfect, perfect. Uh, so I'm going to read your intro, and then we'll get into talking about uh, some things here. So Mark Bouchard is a member, current member? Yes. Of the uh, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police here in Canada. He's assigned to the Williams Lake Detachment in British Columbia. He also has a position on the emergency response team, which we called ERT, which is the equivalent of SWAT here in Canada. Mark has a specialty profile as a medic on the team. And prior to joining the RCMP, he worked for the Delta Police Department for 14 years, uh, also in British Columbia, a suburb of Vancouver. Now, Mark, uh, well, the reason why we connected, he has a passion for mental health and policing, which is based on his experience as a cop and his education. Uh, he was diagnosed with PTSD in 2015 and was unable to work due to a psychological injury. He was able to heal from that and now helping others as a peer support member and road to mental readiness instructor. If that's not enough, this year, Mark has completed a master's degree in leadership. Congratulations uh, from Royal Roads University with a focus on police culture and police mental police officer mental health. He has also spent the past three years writing a book about policing and mental health based on his experiences. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you is when it says focus on police culture, explain police culture and what the public needs to understand about that. Yeah, sure. Well, first off, thanks so much for having me on, Kwesi. I, I really enjoy listening to your podcast and reading your book was awesome as well. So it's a real honor to be on. Thank you. Uh, as, as far as police culture, I didn't. You know, I, I think culture is one of those things that's really hard to define. Um, and it was really interesting to dive into. And the first part came through school when we started learning about organizational culture and just how to learn a bit of what culture is, how to recognize it. Because like as a Canadian, we have a culture, but how do we define it? Is it just not being American? Is it, you know, is it hockey? Is it, what, what, what things make that? And it's the same for policing culture. So what I ended up learning about policing culture is it, it's actually not a, a universal thing. It, it's basically an amalgamation of subcultures. So even within your department, within your agency, you have little subculture units, whether it's this patrol squad or that patrol squad. Uh, and you actually see it in the stats often where one team really likes doing impaired. They love setting up roadblocks. That's part of their culture. Mm -hmm. Some other team really wants to focus on drugs or whatever it is. And then within the different units, you'll also see subcultures. So there are certain universal aspects, um, you know, things like like danger, right? That that's a certain universal part of policing culture. But it actually needs to be seen within the light that those policing cultures are actually subcultures within society. So if you look at like the different places in the world, say you go to a place like you know Britain, well the cops don't aren't armed many of them right because well people in britain have less guns if you tried to do that in america it wouldn't work because there's so many people with guns so yes. it you really you do need to look at it in the context of um of society as a whole and it's been fascinating for me to then having switched departments you can see certain cultural changes or certain differences um just in in how we get by so really yeah. culture the, the, the shortest form of how it's, it's described by one of the experts is how we do things around here. That comes from Edgar Schein, who's one of the, the founding, you know, uh, 
people who have studied organizational culture. Mm. And really what it is, we learn how to deal with our internal and external challenges and our senior people pass it on to the newer people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's actually a part of, of why I've started speaking about mental health, because when I started in policing, no one taught you how to deal with this. They taught you how to take notes. They taught you how to go deal with an impaired call, but mm-hmm. no one taught you how to deal with the emotional pain of a next of kin notification of a fatal car crash. And I'm hoping, and I think that is starting to change, but I think with things like, you know, this podcast and some of the, the work you're doing, and also what I'm trying to change is we can start educating people on how to actually resolve those, the emotional pain that can come with it. Um, so back to your, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say that's, that's good to, that's a good definition. I like the definition of culture, how we do things around here. And that's important to understand uh, for the public as well. And so, and I try to do this podcast when, especially when I speak to first responders, police officers specifically, to make sure I address things that are within policing and that the public and how the policing deals with the public so that whether you're watching it as a first responder, you can get something out of it or listening to it as someone, a member of the public, you can get more of an understanding of policing and bridging the gap, which you probably know is out there uh, between policing and the public, which has always been there in some form, but now it's it's grown even wider. Uh, Something you said that really struck home with me just now is that the way we do things, some officers, some teams, they like to do impaired. They like to do traffic. We had a whole traffic unit when I used to work in, in Richmond and their whole thing was going out and giving tickets. So the reason I mentioned that is when you go, when an officer it stops someone and that person says, oh, you just love giving tickets. All love, all cops love giving tickets. Well, you're wrong, but there are some cops that love doing that particular aspect of the job. Uh, but you sh- it's important not to blanket the whole profession with one dealing you've had with one person. Um, have you experienced uh, any backlash? I mean, you're still a member, so you're still a police officer. What have you seen change maybe in the last couple of years versus your, when you started? Yeah. Um, well, that's an interesting question. I think back to even part of what you said about educating the public, like one of the important things, sometimes it can be perceived like anytime an officer needs to use force and especially lethal force, it's as though they did something wrong. I, I think that can be a perception because the public doesn't know much about that. And, and really, even to use my example of say policing in some places in America versus in Britain, that the challenges you're facing are different. Therefore the culture will develop differently in responses of how to deal with that. And sometimes people perceive like, Oh, well, if this place had more shootings then they must be doing something wrong. And I just, that's not true. Like mm-hmm. Lucas, go, oh, sorry, just hang on one sec. Lucas, yeah. my son just came in. Um, so there's just, there's That's different the world now. It's okay. It's I, I know. Sorry, I got two young kids, uh, and he's actually homesick from daycare today. That's why he's home. That's fine. That's um, fine. but yeah. So, so essentially, we're, we're dealing with different challenges. And really, I actually did a blog post recently on lethal force because even in policing, I think many of us don't learn as much about it as we need to. And I say I felt that I had someone point what turned out to be an imitation firearm at me just over ten years ago, and the the stress that it put on me of needing to shoot someone that I didn't actually shoot, but um, it really impacted me. I had nightmares for years over that um, because of how badly we don't want to. And then only after that, I started reading books like 
you know, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's on killing and on combat to understand the impact of lethal force decisions. And, and now since then, I've talked to so many members where they have essentially a lethal force situation. Someone's coming at them with a knife and they stop the last second and drop it. And the person's a half a trigger pull away from using lethal force. And it really impacts them, even though they didn't actually use lethal force. And that's and what's I think interesting that, that you mentioned that what is, even if they don't use lethal force, there's an impact. A lot of times people think, okay, if you use lethal force, a person dies, then you have, you can get PTSD, you can have psychological trauma from it, but you can have that even if you don't end up using the force. Um, and it just, it's very interesting that you mentioned that. And one thing I want to ask is lethal force psychology, and you're reading about that. Uh, as a former officer, I'd like to know, okay, what's something that an officer maybe one thing an officer doesn't know about lethal force psychology that they should and something the public doesn't know about lethal force psychology but should i think those are actually the same thing and it's okay. how powerful our resistance is to using lethal force psychologically so again those books on killing on combat and there's another one actually called shots fired uh, i forget the subtitle something like the psychology of officer involved shootings mm -hmm. uh, and in that um there's an officer called, named Chad Robichaux, who basically a guy goes to domestic, guy points a gun at him, and, and he says, if you, if you told me about that this morning, I would have said blast him. But in that moment, he can't, right? And, and eventually he gets in a hand-hand fight with this guy, trying not to. He's losing the fight. He ends up having to shoot this man. And many of these officers describe how much their life falls apart after their shootings. Several of them describe suicidal thoughts. And how devastating it is and that, that's not every officer's experience after a shooting but like me i think most or not most many officers do not understand how much those decisions will impact them because back to police culture we get hired wanting to help people i think it's like it's like i did and it's like you did and i used to work help with recruiting interviews with delta and everyone comes in why do you want me to cop i want to help people and then you go out in the world and sometimes helping people and saving people means needing to use force and even lethal force. And that can really impact people. So I, I think as a society, when we hear about shootings, we never hear the details right away. Like it's always, hey, there's an investigation. And then there often can be this assumption that the officer's done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And even some media scrutiny, I mean, with what you would experience with your case, I can only imagine. But I mean, I obviously having worked on a, essentially a SWAT team for 10 years, I know many officers who've been involved in shootings and some of what they, they read and hear and see after the fact really impacts them. And back to Chad's case that he describes in that book, Shots Fired, uh, he says the media headline after said cold-blooded murderer. Like here, you, you desperately don't want to use force. It hurts you to do it. Like psychologically, some people carry this for years and then you're told what a bad human you are when all you wanted to do was go and help people. But I think the public doesn't understand our, our realities of our world, that how, how much danger there is out there. And that's important to, that you mentioned that, and thank you for doing that. I mean, just an officer that uses lethal force and is justified to use lethal force, they're not a cold-blooded murderer. They got in to help people. And it's interesting that you use that exact term because that's something that I've been called numerous times, uh, cold-blooded murderer, even by people in the teaching profession. I speak to, to educators and students now, and there was a teacher that called me that via email. Uh, unfortunately, someone in the teaching profession responsible for our kids called me that. And other people have called me that as well, too. And I've always kind of 
it's always stuck with me because unlike a shooting where you know the person's gonna die, when I was involved in the airport incident that many people have read about, I didn't know he was gonna die. It was really just, okay, use the taser, stop the threat, get him under arrest. And it was a shock to me that he died. And then people turn around and say, cold-blooded murderer, yeah, you went in trying to kill this guy. It's so strange. And I feel for officers that have to deal with being called those things when really at the back of their mind, they're trying to help someone. And unfortunately, when we get in a career where we're trying to help some people and we have to hurt people sometimes, there's just a mismatch psychologically there. Did I ask you something, Questy? What, yeah. what, I guess, could you share with people what that was like for you? Like in those moments, for those people who don't know much about <laughs> like what it's like to be a cop, when, when you, someone says that to you, like, what's that like for you? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hurtful thing. And I mean, it's almost like if you're in a relationship and you're totally faithful to your wife and someone says you're unfaithful and you're cheating or you're lying or you're doing things, uh, that's a more minor example of it. But anytime someone calls you a name that rubs against who you think you are or who you are or your personal values, uh, it's hurtful. And it's not hurtful in the sense that I'm going to go get that person or, you know, I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. But there's a piece of me that wants to reach out to every single person and sit down and say, hey, let's let's have a coffee. Let's talk about what you mean by what you said. And let's get down to the heart of it. And if you still leave after our coffee, after our conversation and say that's a cold blooded murderer, then obviously I haven't communicated my, myself effectively. But I guarantee you, let's sit down. Let's talk. And that term won't be in your head anymore. And that's what I would like a lot of people to, to do in the public with police officers. It's probably never going to happen. But if you just got to know someone, it's a it's a snap judgment based on what you see on the news. And that's what's happened a lot. And that's why I try to have people like yourself, positive role models in the policing profession uh, on here to show, hey, listen, we're human beings. This is what we deal with. Let me try to help the public understand this and help officers deal with the things they go through yeah i think that's huge it's that often what happens is people sit down and talk to someone like you or myself and have just a normal conversation and come across like oh you're one of the good ones and it's like no this this is like most cops are just like you and me and they're just good normal people who want to serve and help their community and they don't want to do any harm they don't want to hurt anyone and they're put in situations where that, that's the reality of the situations we face. How, how often are there shootings? How often are you reading the news of a, a drive-by, a shooting or someone, you know, the, these are, the reality is there's a lot of violence out there. And I'm thankful that much of society does not need to know about it. But I've had times I've gone to three shootings in one shift, right? Like that's, that's a reality out there at times. So we just need to, I think, help educate the public a little bit. And I think, you know, back to the basics of policing, like, Sir Robert Peel, the public are the police and the police are the public. And ultimately, it's on us to help educate the public a little bit about what, what we're doing, what we're facing. I think if we could actually put out some sort of, you know, within seven days, whatever, some reasonable time period, a little more information about these kind of situations, mm -hmm. we would have more support from the public because they'd understand what we're facing. And I'll give you an example, but you, you probably heard of the Starlight Casino uh, hostage taking shooting back probably about 20, about 10 years ago, 2012 ish. Um, one of my friends was involved in a, uh, as a, on the emergency response team responded, had to shoot someone who pointed a gun at him. 
And uh, eventually he got charged with second degree murder. Like they literally went out, rescued a hostage, put themselves in between him and the, or her and the suspect to save her without shooting this person. Eventually they point the gun at, or he points the gun at them and gets shot once. And the police officer gets charged with murder. But it's because of the public pressure on these kind of situations when they're not informed. And I think if we did inform the public of these things sooner, like the public wouldn't stand for it. They, like eventually the victim actually came out. There was a, he- a headline in the news was like, set my hero cop free because of how wrong what was happening was. And that's I think the it, key thing that has, has to happen. Like, I mean, and you can continue with the story in a second, but just we need to find a way to do that. And maybe this is a case where that is that a case where this happened. Someone got on and explained to the media what happened uh, during that particular call. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, eventually they dropped the charges. I think essentially there, there was no way they were ever going to win that case. I mean, it's so wrong that uh, the officer was charged. It's an absolute travesty of justice, but it was just, in my opinion, public pressure to charge cops. And yeah. I think the, the investigative environment has changed very much, uh, you know, in British Columbia, uh, and there's more independent oversight and independent oversight's a good thing. I, like we, we need the public to believe that we're doing a good job, but I don't think there should be pressure to charge cops. Uh, it should just be that, you know, police are investigated just like anyone else. If they commit an offense, then fine, but it shouldn't be like, we're looking to try and get someone. And I, I think that's exactly what happened there. Yeah, and and as you know, I'm I'm extra sensitive to that particular point because that is what what happened to me. I mean, there was a death at the airport, and I was involved. Three separate police forces looked at our case, said, "Hey, listen, these guys do their job. They did nothing wrong." And then a prosecutor was hired, and they went through and they dug through after the inquiry and public pressure. Um, in my opinion, was the reason I was charged, the reason the four of us were charged, because they needed to find something. So the perjury charge was all they could lean on, and uh, that's the direction they took. Uh, there's a book, oh, geez, I think it's called The Courageous Police Leader, and I forgot the name of the author. And he described uh, a use of force incident, and I think it was in Arizona, where uh, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was lethal force was used, but it was either close to lethal force or lethal force and the police chief got on television and gave a media report saying hey listen, this is what the officers saw, this is why they did what they did, and it was justified and that was the that's my nutshell version of what was said. And everybody was like okay we get it. And yeah, this is a courageous police leader. And I wonder what would happen if that happened more often, right? We see something on the news, the public makes a judgment seven days later, even if there's evidence, even if there's things in court that are pending, hey, what can we tell them? We have to have something to say, okay, listen, when officers see A, they do B. And in this case, they saw something and this is how they would have reacted according to their training. I don't know what's gonna happen in this case, there's more evidence to be looked at until it all comes out. But hey, just so you know, this is what's a scene. This is what they deal with. And this is what normally happens in a situation like this. So they can give a generic statement, even if they can't discuss the case. Yeah, I, I think that absolutely convinced that we would start to heal the divide between the public and the police if there was more uh, openness. And we saw some of these heads of polices, police police forces, if you will, on television doing this, or even shift supervisors, somebody. 
Yeah, and it's it's hard to do. It's hard to go out and speak about these things. I think there are people who essentially have a confirmation bias. And anytime they see use of force, oh, that must be, that's just, you know, that cop wanted to, or like they 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 have no basically they have no understanding of what they're saying. Even people that are being used as experts uh in in the media often are not actual use of force experts at all i would challenge they even know understand the use of force model like you know to say anytime you shoot someone who's unarmed that must be you know murder no there's there's times like there's people even me as an armed police officer that i know who are strong enough and dangerous enough that they could kill me with their bare hands because i've tried doing jujitsu with them and trust me i'm absolutely sure of it um but back to what you're saying about the you know, ability of essentially our organizations and our leaders to come out that, that has started happening a little bit. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. It's huge because that's what maintains the public confidence. And r- the reality is in the vast majority, nearly all situations, the officers are doing a great job and are waiting till the last moment and doing everything they can to not use lethal force. And I've, I've been reviewing tons of YouTube videos and all that of shootings. And that's really what you typically see is the officer backpedals and does everything they can until finally there's just no other way and eventually they have to use force. And, and I think the more, you know, body cameras, these kind of things come out, that will that will come out more for the public. I think that'll be ultimately in our favor. Um, and even back to kind of understanding what's happening in those high stress situations. To so talk briefly about your incident and the one I, I mentioned at the Starlight Casino there. In that incident, so the suspect pointed the firearm at the police, but then lowered it. And that was why the officer was charged with, uh, with second degree murder. They said that, well, because the suspect had lowered the gun before he fired the shot, but there's obviously a time lag in our reaction. And the officer, um, when he provided a statement, he actually said, and I forget the exact, whether the gun had come up and then pointed at him and then down or from down to up. But essentially he, he said the wrong version of which they had done because it's, it's how our body processes under stress. Like we, your body is basically, your mind is essentially filling in information. So it, it picks up someone's pointing a gun at me because that's the crucial piece of information. And you have essentially tunnel vision on a gun, right? And, and I can speak to this from experiences where my vision is this big. There's someone out there with a gun. I know I've been on countless high-risk operations. And like one day we knocked down power lines. I, I couldn't even like, I didn't even know there was down power lines. So I was so fixated on like what I thought was someone who might be about to shoot me. Um, so it's understanding how that works and that your mind will only recognize certain parts of it and remember certain parts and will fill in some of the other information. And it's not even that an officer's intending <clears throat> to lie. And in my example, I, I write about um, lethal force and suicide by cop in one of the chapters in my book. And it's that first incident where someone pointed an imitation firearm at me. There were eight officers within probably about 20 feet of this uh, suspect, and only two of them saw him point the gun. So if I had actually shot this person, which I didn't, the second officer who saw it had a taser, not a gun, and didn't deploy because it wouldn't have worked. The other six officers would have all had to go on the stand and said, no, I didn't see that. And then the one officer with the taser doesn't deploy. And then essentially, likely, the media would have been saying that I'm lying and this other officer is covering for me. Meanwhile, I, I didn't shoot this person. And that officer with the taser went on the radio and said, he just pointed a gun at us. And mm. I can tell you, I had nightmares for years, probably like five years, where I just constantly relive needing to shoot people in my dreams because of how painful it was for me to experience like I have to, but I just so badly don't want to. 
And was that in, part of your PTSD diagnosis or are you able to talk about kind of why you were diagnosed and kind of what led up to that? Yeah. There, I mean, I, I think like most people who've had a diagnosis, there's probably like a multitude of, of calls and factors and things in your world. Uh, I think that was certainly a key part or a, a, an important part. Um, there was a, a really bad next of kin notification from a fatal crash when I was like only two months on the job of a, a couple of young girls died that really impacted me and bothered me for years. And then, I mean, how many deaths and crashes and just sadness do you go to, you know, tragic sadness over countless years. And then that, that one, I had a, a two actually very similar uh, lethal force decisions where I didn't shoot either of them, but they really impacted me. Um, and then there was a uh, suicide in my, my personal life as well that really impacted me and everything just kind of combines. And at some point you're not functioning, you can't sleep. Um, but the inter interesting thing with a PTSD diagnosis, I had a lot of symptoms of like a psychological injury, but I don't live with any right now. And I haven't for years. And in my opinion, I look at it like a psychological injury. And I think when you have an injury, you can heal. And I mean, you know, this from personal training, like you can have injuries, but you can, you can heal a lot. You may never, you may have a surgery. I mean, like I have a knee injury I've had for 10, 15 years. It's never going to be the same as it was before, but I still am fit and can function and I, you can heal. And I think for me, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, it was so, it was devastating. It was like, my life fell apart. Like, oh my God, I went from thinking I could do anything that I can't do anything. And I, there was so much shame and stigma and all these things around it. And that's why I want to speak out about it and share more about it. I actually, as part of my healing, I have about 40 pages of journaling, which I know I've, I've heard you talk a bit about journaling. And um, it was just a friend I had so much trust for. He's like a mentor of mine who said, just send me an email, like just write about what you're thinking of what's going on. And I wouldn't have done it like, almost anyone in this world has said it, I would have said, I'm not doing this. Like, I, I'm not interested in that. But it's because you have that trust, you try it. And I actually think it was a huge part of my getting better was that ability to just express what's in you express that negative emotion, and then to let it go. And many of those things that I've mentioned here, I can talk about them now, and they don't carry the same emotional pain. Like, there's still there'll always be sad events that I've experienced, but they don't consume me the way that they did. And really why I started writing my book was being like, we need to teach this stuff to cops and we're not. And it's not just cops, like 80, 90% of the stuff is for people like, and, and many other paramedics and nurses and doctors and corrections and fire and all these things, military is very similar. Like policing has the parts about police culture. It has the parts about lethal force, but things like moral injuries, like, you know, look at your experience with the, at uh, the airport. Like, I didn't know a thing about that, but I didn't know that getting stabbed in the back by the people you trust was going to be way more hurtful than anything some suspect on the street could do. And I think then your experience, like, like, we need to get taught that stuff ahead of time. Because when I learned how to just <clears throat> label those emotions and describe them, it took the pain away. And like, I could let go of the anger and it stopped consuming me in the way that it did. Can you talk more about that? Just because I think there's a lot of, you know, people, whether it's officers or other first responders that are dealing with things and maybe they're dealing it and they're dealing with it and medicating in a different way, whether it's, you know, substance abuse or other things. 
what's the first step to kind of healing? Is it writing some things down? Is it talking to a friend? What is it? To me, it's, it's essentially like psychoeducation. It's, it's us being able to be taught these things to look out for ourselves, because I don't think it can just be that like your boss is watching you and going to notice. Um, so it's that we learn like how to recognize our own signs and symptoms and essentially learning like active versus passive coping skills. So learning what things work well and what things so what's don't. What's an example of that? Give me some examples of active coping skills. Sure. So things like journaling, things like talking to a psychologist, um, even uh, what works well physically, like meditation, mindfulness, breathing. You can control some of your physiology based on your breathing, right? So if you're getting highly activated and even um, like, so for everyone, it will be different, but like, for me, here's a good example. I had a lot of sleep problems and we, I, when I moved to Williams Lake, we ended up getting a place where I have a view. So I'd go watch the sunset and I didn't know at the time, but it felt like I would sleep better. And I learned after the fact that things like a panoramic gaze. So you're basically looking off into like a, a big sunset kind of view, uh, is helping you plus the light. Like we need some light in the morning. That's really good for us. But that reddish kind of light in the evening actually helps to tell our circadian rhythm to let like to, to wind down. Mm, so I didn't understand, I didn't understand it, but essentially you're kind of changing your own physiology. So like I actually recently bought a sauna as well, which is the same thing. When I have a sauna before I go to bed, essentially just like activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which I think for many of us, like me, you're just in sympathetic overdrive. And I had to, when I was off work, I went to a naturopath and did some blood tests. And they told me, they're like, you live in fight, and fight or flight and you never come out. That's like your cortisol levels are elevated, your adrenaline, all these kind of things are way up. And like, that's just, that's, that's totally your normal. And we have some control. I think that was a big lesson for me to learn was when I was diagnosed with PTSD, I felt helpless. Whereas learning that I can control some of what's happening to me, I can't control all of it. And that through, you know, getting out into nature, that was actually something my psychologist said, go for a walk in nature. And I think, say when you're off work, like I was off work for about two months, it's often perceived like, well, you can't go do anything you enjoy. You better just stay in your basement and stare at the wall. Because if anyone sees you, like my, my psychologist said, go to the beach and practice your breathing. Why? Well, the rhythmic, you know, sound of the waves will help to, to lower your stress level, right? And just practice your breathing. Again, that's going to help to lower your stress level. That's going to help to get you back to work faster. It's going to help you get you healthy faster. But meanwhile, I think we have this perception that, oh, that slacker is just faking it and they're just off. Yeah, I saw him at the beach. Be he's just having fun. No, he's, he's working on getting back. The yeah. tools to get back quicker. And, yeah. and we need to, to be a lot kinder to each other with that. And just say a lot of times, like, you don't know what's going on. And it's the kind of injuries that you can't see but I can tell you they're real. And for anyone who says, oh, it must be nice to have the summer off. No, it's terrible. Like I hated being off. It's very disconnecting. We're meant to have purpose and meaning and do things we enjoy and see people we enjoy. Um, but sometimes we need to take that step back. And for me, it was really hard. I fought taking time off. Like I, I refused to take time off. Eventually I took two weeks of vacation. And then at the end of that, I still knew I wasn't ready. Like I remember my last shift or two before being off and I'm just like, Oh man, I really hope nothing happens because I'm not ready to deal with this. And that's not fair to your coworkers either. Like we, we need to 
do what we can to take care of ourselves. And even now I still talk to a psychologist and like new things, new weights will come, you know, jump into your backpack and, and you can choose to let them out. And I think they're often not the ones we think they are. Like everyone thinks it's going to be the big, the big shooting. And it, it might be, it might be some big event, but even for me, I wrote a chapter on emotional pain where I described that the next of kin notification, the crash and all the lessons I learned from it. And after that, I took a call. I'd already written the chapter, but I took a call about a child sex assault. And I, again, I don't go into details of stuff. I don't want to re-traumatize or use vicarious trauma for other people, but it really impacted me. And I, like I did the statement and I went to talk to victim services and refer this person. And then uh, as I, I turned around to walk away, and this woman in victim services, she's awesome. She's like, Mark, that's a really terrible call. What are you going to do to take care of you? And I broke down and started crying. He's like, yeah, it was a terrible call. But rather than just do nothing about it, bury it down, and then anytime I think about it, it's really upsetting, I actually took the time to talk about it, express it, you know, share about it, and, and let go, right? And I actually learned that lesson from um, Dr. Jody Carrington. She, she basically, I'll paraphrase her, but I was listening to her one day and she's, she's basically saying like, you don't have to carry this around anymore. Like you could come let it down to my office. It can just sit over here in the corner and you can just let some of it go. And it's, it's true. And I think for many of us, I think we, uh, we kind of, there's like a stigma around it. So, oh no, no one can know. I need to be super cop. I need to be superhuman. Like for any of us as cops, like you're a person first and a cop second. And you don't get to just shut off being human or human emotions. And there's like, we've evolved like biologically to have empathy with other people, connect with other people. And that's a good thing. And for those of us who like have shut it off, well, then my, my question would be like, well, how are you at home? How are you as a parent? What, what, you know, like if that's the trade-off is like, I won't feel pain at work, but then I can't tell my kids I love them. I don't want that trade. No. And I think we need to teach more of that, not just in police training, but this is the same for, you know, medical professions and all kinds of stuff where you deal with death and trauma and, you know, high stress. Like we need, we, we need to teach more about these kind of things. And I think that's why something like your podcast is so valuable to just sh- talk about these things that are hard. I've listened to most of your episodes by now, and you have some awesome guests who really share the hard parts. That's, that's, that's the important part is, you know, is when it gets hard. Let me, let me ask you this, um, Kevina, you have so much wisdom to share and I'll get you to talk about your book when it's going to be released, title and everything uh, before we end here. Advice for someone thinking about getting into this career, policing, or someone about to start to protect their mental health. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, Well, the first one would be kind of like know your why. Um, understand like purpose and meaning and like you got to go in one and help people and as hard as it is because you might not always feel like you are you're going to go through some pretty hard things there's I kind of describe it like there's days I can't believe they paid me to do this today and there's days you can't pay me enough to do this like this is two mixtures so having that purpose and meaning and if you can come back to that it can help you get through a lot I know you quoted Viktor Frankl in your book there but understanding the power of meaning like to get you through hard times because there will be hard times also some of those can change you for the better so like it's like working out you're going to have a physical stress you're going to get stronger or you're going to have some stress on your brain on your mind and you can become better become stronger out of it 
um, but it's going to be hard. I, I'd also say it takes time to get ready. Like to me, I've, I've helped a bunch of people get into law enforcement and I always tell them take, you know, one to three years, read a book a month, get ready physically, like do what you can. Don't just race in and, and go deal with some incredibly hard things. Um, to, to, and really it's actually part of why I started putting book summaries on my website because these are the kind of books we need to read. These are the same books that I needed that I didn't know I needed. Um, and that I, I had friends that when guys are having a trouble on the team, I say, read this book. Like you haven't read that book. Okay. Go read, you know, start with emotional survival for law enforcement. There you go. It's yeah. the, the best book for a cop that I was given that book by a, a police psychologist and man, I read it probably once a year. I've given it to every recruit I've had. I've and probably who is that? To, Who's that written by? Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. Kevin I've Gilmartin. probably given it to 50 cops in the okay. span of my life. And uh, every cop needs to read that book. Explains about police culture, about a bunch of what's happening, a bunch of how all the other roles in your life start to go away. You, you go from being a, a dad and a husband and a you know, hockey coach and all these things to just being a cop. The cop role takes over and you can become really jaded and cynical and and uh, I've, I've watched a lot of people get into policing and i've seen some changes in people and it's hard because we deal in negativity all the time that's all you're doing someone had a bad day they're you're arresting someone you're writing them a ticket it's all criticizing it's all just negativity and and a lot of um, hard times so it's really important to understand what's happening and to be able to kind of stay balanced and stay healthy for yourself well, I hope a lot of rookies get to meet you or people getting into the profession, because I think that that would be so helpful for them to learn that um, I'll know your why. And I like that you said, come back to it, because it's easy to jump into the job and say, you know, like, yeah, I want to help people. Da, 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 da. You're full of energy and full of that why. But talk to some officers 10 years down the road, five years down the road, one year down the road, depending <laughs> on what you deal with. You got to come back to that to re-energize you, return to that why. And also that you're giving out the book, you're giving out uh, information to people. Um, talk to me about psychological help. Um, I know you said you've seen a psychologist. Um, what are your thoughts on whether this should be something that all officers should do as, it, as it's needed after each incident? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. It should be mandatory for everyone to go. And I don't mean go as in the psychologist reports back on you. I mean, just that everyone needs to go. Um, it's something I put off for a long time. I think there certainly uh, was a stigma around mental health and policing and around those kind of things. Like no one wants to be seen as weak or crazy. It's crazy not to go. You know, I, I look back to, um, and I draw a lot of my inspiration from books, but Romeo Dallaire has a book waiting for first light. An awesome book where he shares his journey of, of you know PTSD and, and the hardships of what it is. And the biggest lesson I turned from his book was don't wait, don't wait to get help. Like stay healthy from the beginning. It, it should be every cop needs to go while you're in training. And then yeah, you go again while you're in field training, and then you go again to pass. Uh, and then just becomes a habit. And I think we'll be a lot healthier because of it. And again, I, I go somewhat regularly. It's not like I have to do it every month. I kind of use it as needed, but I also know like to keep going that it, and to find the right person for you. I've talked to numerous different psychologists. You don't want to find your, the psychologist for you or the psychological professional, whatever it is. I've talked to registered clinical counselors too, but you don't want to find that person when you're already really struggling. And I'll say when I was off work and I was having a really hard time, 
I had found a psychologist and I showed up for my appointment and you're waiting all week and you just want to get better and you're so upset. And I showed up and they forgot about my appointment. They weren't there. So you know what? It'd be one thing if you'd already worked with this person for 10 years, you'd probably be a little more, but when you're devastated and you're just desperately want help, dude, I was crying. I was devastated. Mm. Like, and you, you, you can't have, you can't work with someone if, if you can't trust them. So go out and find that person earlier. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's incredibly valuable. And I think we will get to the point that we all must go um, and need to go. It's good for us, but I just don't think we're there yet. Even as an organization, I don't think we can afford not to invest in this. How many people are off duty sick are off injured, only work a few years and then can never continue. And I think if we change how we teach this and how we support people, that that would not happen. And ultimately, we can't afford not to invest in this. And I, t- I totally agree with you You there. Almost, I mean, it's like, like you say, being in shape. You don't work out because you have an illness. You work out to stay in shape. And so we need to work out by going to see someone to keep in mental shape. <laughs> and yeah. I think you're right. I think at some point we're going to see it. And I, I do see some forces that are pushing it pushing to have it done more regularly. Um, it's a mandatory thing. And like you said, if you're, you're, you've done NOKs, next of kin notifications, shootings, the stuff we see, like you said, is not normal. And we need someone to bounce these things off of. And you're right, try different people. I know when I saw a psychologist, I saw a psychologist in BC, it didn't work for me. There was not a fit, but I didn't give up. I found someone here in Toronto that was more for me. Um, and I had a couple of people suggested to me from, from the forest that I didn't like either. So play around, find the person that works for you. Um, I want to, in the interest, of, go ahead, go ahead. I just want to touch on one more thing there. The, yeah. the surprising thing is officers want this. I actually just, as I was completing my master's, I did a research project and interviewed a bunch of officers. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked, A, at how much stigma there still was around mental health and how many officers, even ones who've never talked to a psychologist, saying we want it to be mandatory that everyone has to periodically or at set intervals which to think they already can they already can go for free and it can already be anonymous but what they want is they want it to be destigmatized they want it to be normalized and i think that's an important lesson even for our organizations to hear because i don't know many things that a bunch of cops all want together at all like n- none of us want to be told what to do the fact that we want to be told to go and these people aren't already going is powerful evidence that we we need to change that. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right, actually. If it's mandated and people might say, okay, we'll just go. Why do you care if it's mandated? We care because if I say to you, Mark, I went to see a psychologist the other day and you didn't, and my other partner didn't, you look at me and I think you look at me as weak because I went to say psychologist. But if we all had to do it, like, oh, you went to see your shrink last week, it becomes a normal conversation. Well, and, and- to, tie, to tie that back in, that's police <laughs> culture. That is changing police culture. And back to the definition of culture, it's the, when the senior people te- teach the new, new people how to deal with internal and external problems. That's effectively what we're doing. And that's why I want to talk about this and why I think it's important what you're doing is we are changing culture. Culture just takes a long time to change. Yeah. Yeah, and I hope we, we can do, we do it together. Well, I'm, I'm so excited that we met. Um, and for those listening, Mark reached out to me. We hadn't met before, and I'm learning so much from you. Uh, the wisdom, I'm going to go back and read some of these books that you just described. 
Um, and I'm definitely going to read your book. So tell everyone where they can find you, where they can get your book or when it's coming out and um, just how to connect with you. Yeah, thanks a lot. So uh, I have a website, it's just my name, markbouchard.ca. Uh, I started a blog on there. So I have a couple topics, just an intro one and a uh, one about lethal force so far. The next one's going to be about emotional pain. I have a few more in the works. I do book summaries on there uh, of some of the books we've talked about, books around like uh, lethal force, around police suicide. Um, also journal articles, like academic journal articles. I try and summarize those in really simple ways and some essentially organizational reports that are similar um, to make them really understandable and the kind of stuff we need to know that are, can be a little confusing to read with links to the actual articles that you can access for free. Um, so there's that. Uh, I'm working on my book. I'm, it's mostly written. Uh, I'm just in an editing process. Uh, it's called uh, Setting My Sights on Sigma. And I'm really excited. I, I share a bunch of my journaling. I share kind of like I start with a story. I just share that story. It's easy to remember, kind of captivating. And then I share what I learned about those topics. So things like stigma, police culture, lethal force, uh, post-traumatic growth, suicide, uh, or organizational stress, moral injuries, um, uh, even as chapter all about sleep. Like I didn't know anything about sleep until I couldn't sleep and I just started following experts. And then I just try and translate a bunch of what they say into the sleep science that we should all get that most of us don't. Uh, so you can go to my website. There's a place you can sign up for the book that to be notified once it's out. Uh, I don't have an exact release date yet. Um, probably sometime early next year is my hope, uh, but I'm still working full time, got the kids, you know, got overtime. So just and now that I'm done my master's, it's a little more time to put it in the book. And I, I really just want to help people, which is why I was so excited to reach out to you. Listening to your podcast has really helped me. And reading your book was so inspiring. Um, just I, we've, A lot of the same authors have really inspired us. I love how you used all the quotes and you share the hard parts. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do is that's the kind of stuff that I needed 15 years ago when I started this job. And what I'm hoping to do is, is to pass on the things that I've learned that I wish I'd known. So I, I really hope it can help people as well. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you very much. MarkBouchard.ca. Go there, connect with him, get his book. Uh, whether you're in law enforcement or not, I think it's going to help a lot of people. And thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Awesome to chat with you. It was an honor.